This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Hello and welcome to Bookmark This, a Straits Times podcast in which we talk about books in the headlines and recommend you new reads. I'm Olivia Ho, and I'm joined today by my co-host To Wenli. Hello. Now, in our last episode, we talked about escapist fiction, which I hope you enjoyed because now we plan to go in the completely opposite direction and talk about literature that takes you out of your comfort zone. Discomfort is having something of a winning streak of late, what with uh, Singaporean poet Marilyn Tan becoming the first woman poet to win the Singapore Literature Prize with her arcane, unapologetic debut, Gaze Back, and Marika Lucas-Rinveld winning the Booker International Prize with The Discomfort of Evening, a Dutch bestseller that has been much talked about because it's so very disturbing. We're also going to talk about new books like Death in Her Hands by Otessa Moschweg and The Lying Life of Adults by Elena Ferrante. So we've talked about Gaze Back on this podcast before, uh, funnily enough in conjunction with Lion City by Eng Yisheng, which also won the Singapore Literature Prize for English Fiction, along with Nimitas Place by Akshita Nanda. So congratulations to everyone. Wenli, would you like to do a quick recap of Gaze Back for listeners? Sure, yeah. So where do I begin? Gaze Back, Meredith Tan's debut volume of poems is about so many things, right? Sexuality, desire, nakedness, blood, queer female desire, the disenfranchised and witchcraft. Um, so, well, at the end of this book of poems, Tan tells the reader that the project was born of loathing and disgust. It was written as a grimoire, a book of spells, but also tries to create a new grammar to articulate the contemporary female experience. Um, so just to give you a flavor of what she has in this collection of poems, um, she experiments with different kinds of script from free verse to the Python programming language, um, to another poem that draws on the symbols of Unicode, um, a kind of hex ed, um, where the poems are kind of spawned from astrological and alchemical symbols. It's such a rich collection of poetry, and two years later, I'm still discovering so many new things about it. I think it's particularly opposite that Gaze Back was the book to make history. No woman poet has fully won the Singapore Literature Prize before this in all the 28 years of its existence since 1990. We had a partial win before with Hartina Ahmad, who won the prize from Malay Poetry in 2016 for anthology Tafsiran Tiga Alam. This was a co-authorship with Hame Ismail and Samsudin Said. And in 2014, Murthy Matangi won a commendation for Tamil poetry, but we had no full solo winners. In 2014, uh, also the same year, there was this sexism role when two male poets, Joshua Ip and Yong Shu Hong, won for English poetry and poet Grace Chia, who was shortlisted but didn't win, made a Facebook post accusing the prize of sidelining women's writing. Got very um, controversial and a bit ugly. Uh, anyway, it's been a long time coming for a woman poet to win, and it's refreshing to see the prize go to a work that, as the judges put it, disturbs as it delights. Now we move on to a work that disturbs and does not delight. That is The Discomfort of Evening by Marika Lucas Rinvald translated from Dutch by Michelle Hutchinson. It was a bestseller in the Netherlands and it won the Booker International Prize, which to clarify is different from the Booker Prize in that it is fiction translated into English and the prize is split between the writer and the translator. Rinvald, who is non-binary, is at 29 the youngest ever author to receive the prize. So I'm still trying to work out how I feel about this book. I don't think I ever will. It's very disturbing. It's 
wonderfully poetic. I think it's very well written, but the things that happen in the book are sometimes stomach churning. And I still, sometimes I think about them when I'm eating and I lose my appetite. Uh, so it's got this very unique child narrator, uh, Yas, who is 10 years old, and she's growing up on this dairy farm in a rural Christian community. She has all these childish convictions that are particular to children, like how she, she refuses to take off her coat to protect herself. She believes her parents are going to kill her pet rabbit because she sees something like a noose hanging in the attic. And she's jealous that she can't go ice skating with her older brother, Mathis. So she prays to God to take him instead of her rabbit. And then he dies. Oh dear. So Rinvald in real life really did lose their brother at a young age and they continue to work on a dairy farm today. So even if it's not entirely autobiographical, you can see how the novel is so thoroughly and unflinchingly detailed. And uh, this farm that they, the family lives on is, there is not a pastoral, charming farm. It's very rough. Uh, it's sort of, the whole narrative feels like it's encrusted in excrement. Uh, Yas's mother doses the children with worm medicine and because, you know, they might get worms and she rubs other ointment, which is exactly what it sounds like, into their skin to protect them from the cold. And the father brings back this these moldy bread and he cuts the mold off the bread to feed it to them to save money. And this is all before they lose uh, Mathis and the family react in very different ways to the loss. The father has these bouts of rage. He threatens to leave. The mother stops eating. She enters this deep depression and keeps insisting she's a bad mother. Uh, Yas's brother, Obey, begins to hurt and then to kill animals. Then her younger sister, Hannah, begins to explore sexual acts with little awareness of what they mean. Yas gets very intense constipation and she bloats up like a, like a corpse. Uh, like a physical manifestation of all the things that she and her family and her society are trying to repress. And, you know, to warn people, I would say that this book contains scenes of animal abuse. It contains scenes of children exploring their sexuality. There's a particularly horrific scene involving an artificial insemination gun. So it's really hard for me to honestly recommend it uh, to I can't really say like, read, you must read this book because if you're very squeamish, you really should not read this book. And yet the writing is strikingly poetic. So I will read a section here in which Yas is talking to these toads that she keeps in a bucket. But to be honest, dear esteemed toads, I think we've dug ourselves in, even though it's summer. We're buried deep in the mud and no one is going to get us out. Do you actually have a God? A God who forgives and a God who remembers? I don't know what kind of God we have. Maybe he's on holiday or he's dug himself in. Whatever it is, he's not exactly on the case. And all these questions, toads, how many fit inside your little heads? I'm no good at maths, but I'm guessing about 10. You have to think that if your little heads fit about a hundred times inside mine, how many questions there are in me and how many answers that haven't been ticked off yet. I'm going to put you back in the bucket now. I'm sorry about this, but I can't set you free. I'd miss you, because who would watch over me when I sleep? I promise to take you to the lake one day, then we'll float away together on a lily pad. Maybe, only maybe, I'll even dare to take off my coat. Even though it will feel uncomfortable for a while, but according to the pastor, discomfort is good. In discomfort, we are real. I think there's something to be said for 
the nightmarish quality of childhood. I mean, childhood is often seen as this very fairy tale like period in a person's life, right? But there are a lot of writers and a lot of artists and filmmakers who explore this dark underbelly of childhood, especially when told from a child's perspective. Everything seems to loom so large, and there is the nightmarish quality that it kind of reminds me of this film, The Reflecting Skin, um, a 1990 cult. Um, horror film um, by Philip Wrightley,、um, starring Viggo Mortensen, and it's set in this small town in Idaho, in the states. And there is one scene that features this bloated frog, and it's eventually blood splattered because the children are so cruel they, 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 they kill it. It puts pay to this idea that childhood is this prelapsarian、um, experience. It's sort of always lapsarian. I don't know if there's a word for that, <laughs> but it's at the same post time post-lapsarian, post, po- but but always proto-post lapsarian.、Um, but Yaz is so、um, she's trying to deal with grief, and she, as a child, she doesn't know what grief is, and she's trying to put into words. She she doesn't have words for it either, so she's trying to express this feeling that her body cannot seem to contain, and in fact, the whole novel seems full of decay, and.、Uh, She's concerned that something is growing inside her, inside all of them, and they don't understand. And they have to keep moving in these patterns of awful behavior because they hope that someday it, they will understand. You know, they will understand why Mathis died, but they, you know, but they don't know when that's going to happen. Now, if you like what you're listening to, follow our podcast series "Bookmark This" on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Like us and give us a rating too. Back to our show and onto our next book. So the next book we're discussing today is "Death in Our Hands" by Otessa Moschweg. It's the latest book by, yes, my favorite author, one of my favorite authors.、Um, she's the author of "My Year of Rest and Relaxation,"、um, which was a novel about、um, a world-weary graduate who spends a year in drug-induced hibernation. So her latest book、um, features a much older narrator, a seventy-two-year-old widow, Vesta Gall, who happens to be walking her dog in the woods when she finds a handwritten note on the ground, and the note reads, "Her name was Magda. Nobody will ever know who killed her. It wasn't me. Here is her dead body." Well, so there's no body actually、um, to be found when Vesta discovers this note. She becomes obsessed with the idea of trying to solve the mystery of Magda's death in the subsequent in the days that follow. So,、um, as you know, I'm a big fan of Moschweg's writing. I love her caustic prose, her black humor, and if you already happen to be a fan of her work, I think "Death in Her Hands" won't disappoint you.、Um, even though it's a lot less provocative than, for example, "My Year of Rest and Relaxation."、Um, also,、um, I-, I love how she names her characters. Every name is carefully crafted and selected, and it tells it tells a story. Magda, Vestergal. And even the sleepy U.S. town where Vesta lives, Levant, has a heaviness to it, a heavy quality to it. When you when you read the name out in your head, so Definite Hands、um, deals with issues of loss and loneliness, about what it means to love someone but also resent them, and also like rest and relaxation. It's slightly escapist in the sense that、um, the narrator swaddles herself in the comforts of the imagination. She frequently confuses reality and fantasy. We see characters. Is appearing in a book, but we can't quite tell whether these are people she actually sees or whether they are figments of her imagination. So it's、um, a murder mystery novel with a twist, and ultimately it pushes us towards this question of how do you murder the dead? How do you、so、murder the dead? So it's it was quite how do you yeah how do you murder the dead? How do you 
how do you come to terms with your relationship with people who have really departed? I mean, so I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that Vesta is a widow. And um, throughout the novel, we, um, we watch her ruminate on episodes from her earlier life, you know, when she's interacting with her husband um, and, and the resentment that builds up over the years with um, her memories of her husband and how she feels towards him, all the unresolved angst that still um, survives. So we've got a lot of big new books coming in the month of September because of the delay due to the COVID-19 pandemic. And one of the biggest that came out was The Lying Life of Adults, which is the first novel in five years by Elena Ferrante, the famously pseudonymous author of the Neapolitan novels, My mm. Brilliant Friend, and so on, translated by Anne Goldstein as well. True to form, it is set in Naples and it is about the complexities of growing up as a teenage girl. And it's got one of my favorite first paragraphs that I think I've read this year. So I'm gonna read that out. Two years before leaving home, my father said to my mother that I was very ugly. The sentence was uttered under his breath in the apartment that my parents, newly married, had bought at the top of Via San Giacomo di Capri in Rione Alto. Everything, the spaces of Naples, the blue light of a frigid February, those words remained fixed. But I slipped away, and I am still slipping away. Within these lies that are intended to give me a story, while in fact I am nothing, nothing of my own, nothing that has really begun or really been brought to completion, only a tangled knot, and nobody, not even the one who at this moment is writing, knows if it contains the right thread for a story or is merely a snarled confusion of suffering without redemption. So what Giovanna's father actually says verbatim is that she is beginning to resemble her aunt Vittoria, who is a woman in whom ugliness and spite were combined to perfection. And Vittoria has apparently poisoned the rest of his family against him. That's why he now lives at the top of Naples in this middle-class household and Vittoria lives in the industrial zone. But then because of what her father says, Giovanna becomes fixated with finding out more about this unwanted future as represented by Vittoria. So she has to literally descend through the city and into the industrial zone where people speak this uh, Neapolitan dialect, which her father has banned in their house for being too low class. And her father escaped the neighborhood through his intellect, but Vittoria remains entrenched in it. She can't seem to escape it. And she works as a cleaner to support the three children of the woman whose husband she stole. So she had an affair with this man who had three children with another woman and then he died. And then she is now supporting that family because their fates are entwined. And when Giovanna meets Vittoria for the first time, she thinks she possesses a beauty so unbearable that to consider her ugly became a necessity. And then from this point, the foundations of the whole family unit begin to crumble as a uh, they expose lie after lie that her parents, that Victoria, that everyone has been telling each other. And um, Giovanna begins to realize that adulthood and deceit are kind of intertwined. And she begins to tell her own lies. Speaking of lies, there is the issue of um, Ferrante's anonymity, right? Um, this idea of authorship is a lie. And lots of, so many academics and journalists have spent countless hours trying to figure out who Ferrante actually is, yeah, which I so find a pretty pointless exercise, to be honest. I mean, there are people who have turned to computer programs to analyze prose styles, you know, as a means of finding out who 
Ferranti actually is. Is she one person? Is she several? Is she a man? Um, I don't really think it matters who the author is in this situation. Particularly the fixation of the idea that she is a man. I think that so. I think in 2016, Claudio Gatti, the journalist, he tried to um, point out that she was trans. This translator Anita Raja, and then someone else said that it was Anita Raja's husband who was actually writing the book. So Ferranti has said that this is pretty sexist because, you know, why would you know, that that it had to be a man who is exactly. writing these books? And I think she's directly. Uh, speaking about that, to speaking to that in the opening when she says, you know, not even the one who is writing this knows. Uh, she's talking about this lie that authorship is. It's a persona that is created, and uh, as you know, what how much of a woman's life is a constructed lie, and she's. So I think a lot of that underpins this novel, which is the first that she has written since. All this um, expose this trend of expose started to happen.、Mm. Yeah, can I just say how fascinated I am by the character of Vittoria Giovanna's aunt? Because so much of the humor in this novel comes from her. She's crude, she's honest, and she's just much needed foil to Giovanna's earnestness as a as a girl. And also, she also serves as a foil to、um, the intellectual refined air of Giovanna's、um, parents, who are academics. Um, there is one scene where the narrator Giovanna、um, looks through the old family photographs. She's trying to find out what her aunt actually looks like, and then、um, only to discover that her father has studiously obliterated his sister's face from the old photos. And later on, when Giovanna meets her aunt, and、um, Vittoria tells her she's referring to something else, but she, she tells her he's the only one who does good things. He can't accept that others do too, and if you tell him it's not true, he raises you, which is exactly what he did previously with the photos. So I I just find Victoria fascinating. She's vulgar. She's but she's also this comic figure.、Um, she's emotionally possessive. Some might say manipulative. She creates a rift between Giovanna and her parents. But she's also strangely likable. So this very strange ambiguity I find I find fascinating. And it I think it it speaks to how you know as as a novel、um, about the lies we tell each other and ourselves. I mean it's a novel about the appearances we keep up, the illusions we indulge in, and The very strange murkiness of human relationships and our motivations.、Um, through all this ambiguity, she all this points towards a kind of emotional honesty, because it's just so it's so true to life. I think she's one of those figures that troubles the you know bound boundaries between between beautiful and ugly, between what is safe and what is not safe. And、uh, Giovanna goes to her looking for a sort of way to see her future. But at the same time, Victoria is not a perfect figure in that respect. She, I find her towards the end, she becomes quite pitiable. Even and Giovanna doesn't respect her anymore either. And Giovanna's just trying to find different people to pin her hopes onto, and it doesn't doesn't really work. And there's this, like you said, there's this dialectic between ugliness and beauty. And jo- Giovanna deliberately starts to make herself ugly. As she, you know, she wears these very formless clothes, all in black, black like a <laughs> your, your average teenage goth. And she engages in increasingly destructive behavior. She acts out in school. She, you know, flunks her flunks her exams, and she starts to flirt with boys, even though she tries to engage and se- tries to sexually proposition them, even though actually, sex in Ferrante's books is kind of. Nasty! It's appallingly banal. You know, it's 
even though everyone's obsessive with it, it's their character motivation most of the time. And Ferrante is very obsessed with smell. Um, she mm. keeps writing about it, and it's it's not good. It's not good smells. Yeah, nope. Naples is <laughs> wash of it. Yeah, I've just been thinking about this symbol of the bracelet, which appears it, it recurs in the novel, right? I mean, it's this beautiful bracelet that was presumably given to Giovanna when she was a child, and then it, it reappears on the arms of different people, um, mm. passing from one woman to, to another. It's, it's lost, it's found, it's abandoned, stolen. I don't know what it really stands for. It's almost a kind of burden that, that is transferred. Yeah, so in the Neapolitan novels, there, is, uh, there are these dolls that keep reappearing as well. And there's this you know, notion that it connects the two two girls that it connects their childhood with their teenagehood and with the adulthood and in this yes. the bracelet connects different generations of women but the way that it's been passed between them is just completely deceitful and full of betrayal yeah it's also a very elegant way of connecting these different characters and you know different moments in their lives and, and which kind of ties in with what i really appreciate about ferrante's style which is it's lightness, its smoothness. Maybe this could be um, the effect of, of, of it being translated into English. I don't know. Can I just say that I think Anne Goldstein is a fantastic translator. It doesn't feel at all like it's translated, which is... It does not, yeah. ...with one of the best marks of translation. These books aren't for everyone, but if you're brave enough to check them out, who knows what you'll discover. And that's all we have time for today. Once again, thank you for listening to us. I'm Olivia Ho. And I'm To Wen Lee. And you have been listening to our Bookmark This podcast. Stay home, stay safe, and we'll catch you in our next episode. That was an SBH podcast by The Straits Times. Find us on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts, or streaming on Google Home. Do feedback to us at podcast.sbh.com.sg. You can also check out more podcasts on various topics at The Straits Times, The Business Times and Money FM 89.3.